you're looking for greatness in, in life, in any discipline, you're looking at lots of factors and all accumulating to become really good at what you do. Welcome to the Brave Bob Brilliant Podcast. I'm here today with Mr. Neil Jane, who is the orthopaedic surgeon who actually operated on my left knee. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I guess that breaks all patient confidentiality rules about you. So uh, I, 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 if it just slips out that I've operated on you, I'm covered now. <laughs> hey, listen, full disclosure, I sing your praises to anyone that's got any issues with their knees. So, you know, no, absolutely. I'll, full disclosure for me, I'm an open book. Sorry, but um, So we're here in um, very rainy uh, Berry <laughs> in the glamorous hospital here. But we're keeping it real. So, Neil, I'm really fascinated. What makes a great orthopaedic surgeon, in your opinion? Yeah, it's it's a really easy question to start with there, isn't it? Um, <laughs> nah, it's, it's, it's multifactorial, like most things, I suppose. If you're looking for, for greatness in, in life, in any discipline, you're looking at lots of factors and all accumulating to become really good at what you do. You know, on one hand, you could you could take the... Dave Brailsford cycling, British cycling marginal gains theory and, and break it down into lots of lift, little parameters. Mm. Do all of them as best you can and you'll create a great surgeon. But uh, on that note, I'd always remember the other end of the spectrum, something a bit more simple. One of my old bosses in, in Plymouth when I was a junior doctor said to me, it's, it's nice and easy, choose well, cut well, be well. And, and I suppose that you can break that down further, you know, Patient selection, so it all starts in the clinic. You take a good history, examine your patients, look at the scans and x-rays, and then relate that to the patient and listen to your patient about what they want from the consultation, from the treatment, from the management plan. That might sometimes mean an operation, but actually most of the time it won't. Mm. And then when you do the operation, you make sure you do it well. Leave no stone unturned, be really fussy, Lots of uh, people in theatre can turn me fussy and anal at times. I say I'm, I'm thorough, but I guess that's a perspective thing. And then if you can do those things well, you're probably going to be all right. And, and whether you're a great surgeon or not, I don't think many of us aim for greatness. We just aim to be competent and, and try and help our patients as best we can. Mm, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're going to get into your journey a little bit and how you got into all of this and your love for sport as well and kind of where life started for you in Cumbria, in Barrow and Barrow. Furness. Barrow. Yes, yes. Barrow in Furness. In Furness, sorry, yeah, I'm saying right. it wrong. Right. Everyone says it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, before we do, because, I mean, from my perspective, when I met you, um, I was in a lot of pain with my knee. And the thing that I think made me feel really comfortable and in your hands was because you're dead normal you know and you obviously we're two northerners so hence the accents right but yeah. nonetheless you know you explained everything in really simple terms I didn't feel patronized uh, you know you really took the time so I think as well as the technical side of being an amazing surgeon and the training and all of that it's actually the interpersonal skills I think that that certainly in my my own experience of, of being under your care was around just being calm and knowing that I was in good hands and not feeling like I didn't understand what was going on. So how important is that with the patient, that relationship, do you well, think? First off, that's really kind of you to say, <laughs> but I think it's massive. Mm. And I think it's something that some people are more natural with it and some people have to be more conscious about it. But 
Ultimately, as a surgeon, as a doctor, you're reliant upon information from your patient because you want to help them. Mm -hmm. And so if your patient comes in and they're not comfortable, you can't extract that information to help them, ultimately. So there's a bit of that going on, and, and it, it's... Um, You've already mentioned sport, so a lot of my principles and thought processes come from sport. I've already mentioned the cycling side of things, mm. but there's a there's a famous rugby player, um, former Wales and British Lions captain, a guy called Sam Warburton. Yeah, and uh, his his mentality is fantastic for sport, and uh, uh, always sticks out in my mind that there was a an interview with him as he's landed off an aeroplane from. New Zealand back into Heathrow where he's being interviewed by somebody and, and a kid comes up and says oh can I just have a photo and he breaks off the interview has a photo and the interviewer says to him do you, do you never get bored do you never get you know frustrated you've just come off a 24-hour flight mm. and he talks about a story where he was out in, in Cardiff with his, his brother and he turned down someone for an autograph and his brother said hey go back do it bring him back here, sign the autograph type of thing. Just a paraphrase, really. Mm. And his brother said to him, he said, Sam, remember, it might be the millionth time you've done it, but it's the first time for that person. Make it special. Mm. And it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's what you try and bring to every consultation. Now, do I always do it? Probably not, because realistically, you know, you see maybe 6,000 people a year or wow. 6,000 consultations and, and people interactions and... You know, I don't know what's gone on in their life in the last 24 hours. I don't know what their fears or concerns would be about seeing a doctor. And, and similarly, they don't know what's going on in my life and my private life. And, and we can all get out of the bed the wrong, the wrong side every day. So they don't always go to that way. But philosophically... That's a strong principle I have and, and want to try and bring into my practice. Mm, well, I, it definitely, well, in my own exam uh, um, situation, it's certainly um, shone through for me. So thank you. And here we are, all having a podcast. Yeah, yeah so exciting. <laughs> See, there are brilliant guests every single where, all around. And uh, I think you are my first surgeon. Well, there you go. Hey, you're yeah. the first. So, so let's talk about your journey a little bit, then, Neil. Okay. Where you know, like where life started for you, yeah. um, and and how you ended up, you know, going from. Growing up in Barrow, in Furness. Furness? Furness. Furness. Oh, we'll just call hell. it Barrow. Barrow. We'll, we'll call it Barrow. Or if you're from Barrow, you call it Barra. <laughs> Barra. But, but, but that's, that's all right. That's <laughs> so growing up as a kid there to ultimately here you are today as a top-notch orthopaedic surgeon operating on premiership footballers, you know, working with elite sports people as well as average Joes like me too um, but yeah talk about the journey a little bit yeah Have... so well I mean it started on the 12th of October 1979 so if anyone wants to send me a, a birthday card for next year <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's always well received it's um yeah I was born in Kettering my mum's Irish my dad's Indian and and you know having those two quite ethnically diverse backgrounds in life both um, language race culture um, even foods, you know, mum eats meat, my dad's a vegetarian. So th there's a huge diversity there. And so from a very young age, it made me, I guess, open to lots of different aspects of life. And, and it starts an intrigue about stuff. And then you grow up in a, in a town like, like Barrow, which is almost the opposite. It's a very mm. local, tight community based around one industry, which was the shipbuilding at the time. Um, but again, that was... I mean, it's a great place to grow up. It's home, right? So you're always, you always love your home. And I went went to school 
did okay at school and, and sport was my passion. So I always wanted to do something in sport, whether that was play, um, be involved in media. And so it meant I was doing a lot of sport after school. Now, luckily, as fate has it, we lived six miles away from the school and public transport in the 1980s and 90s wasn't quite as good as it is now. And so I was very reliant upon my mum picking me up after school, after I played sport. And the deal was you can you can have a lift home if you do your homework. <laughs> good deal. So, you know, logically minded, I, I thought I'll do my homework and we'll be okay. And then, yeah, all through teenage years, never really wanted to be a doctor. Um, started sixth form college, still didn't want to be a doctor. And I actually got a, an application and a place at university at uh, Leeds Trinity and All Saints University doing... Um, media and, and sport or sport and media whichever way around it was at the time but um with a view to becoming a commentator um for football or another sport as such because they had some links with the bbc at the time um but to kind of pacify my parents in a way i'd applied for medicine as well knowing i wouldn't get the grades for it so it'll be okay it's showing willing showing i've tried and then I always remember the, the Thursday I got my exam results. I got an A, B and a C in, in, in uh, A-levels. Thinking, I've done okay there, I'm happy with that. Um, <laughs> and good enough to just miss medicine, but to get in for the other one. Um, only to then be told, I've got, to, I've got to phone the University of Southampton for them to officially reject me. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, okay. Um, so I remember I went out that night, enjoyed it. Um, partied with my friends to celebrate A-level results, came back the next day um, and I had to phone Southampton after two o'clock and I must have got home at quarter past two in the afternoon and, and picked up the phone, phoned them and they said, yeah, we'll take you. And then it was like, oh, crumbs, what, what do I do? Because I didn't actually expect to be doing it. And I'll, I, I don't remember the person's name, but... Some of the best careers advice I ever had was from the tutor at Leeds because I had to phone them to say, look, I'm in a bit of a pickle. I've been accepted by Southampton, but I actually really want to go to do sport and media with you. And I always remember she said to me, look, you've got a great chance. Medicine's a great career. It's probably more consistent than trying broadcasting. Mm -hmm. Why don't you do it for a year, see if it's you, and if it's you, stick with it. And if it's not, we'll hold a place for you next year. Wow, that's good advice. It was uh, and, and sentinel in, in terms of my life, I suppose, yeah, really. Yeah. Come, it's funny, isn't it? Life comes down to some odd moments like that. But that was, a, that was one of those moments that I thought, oh, OK, fine. So off I go to Southampton University. Didn't think much of it. Thought, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, it's worth it for a year, see what it's like, and I'll go to Leeds next year. And then, again, serendipitously, I tore my own ACL and ligaments in my knee, meniscus as well, and then I met a surgeon called David Barrett in Southampton who was inspirational. And so you end up thinking, oh, hang on, this guy's, this guy, yeah, I'd like to be like this fella. You know, he's fixed my knee, he's got charisma, he does a lot of good things. And we were doing about the musculoskeletal system at the time, had some more talks from other people related to sport. And I always remember, again, in Southampton, 
probably towards April, May time of that first year, so getting towards the end of it, lying on my bed looking at the ceiling thinking, I really want to do this. And that was it then. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, like you say, sliding doors moments where, you know, just that if you'd not spoken to that particular person on that particular day in Leeds that gave you that great advice, you could have taken a completely different path, right? Yeah. It's so. not, yeah. I mean, I love that movie, Sliding Doors. Oh, I me too. You can, you can so relate to it, can't yeah, you? And, yeah. And it is, yeah, you look back on, you know, it was 25 years last month that I, I went to university and what's happened in that time where you could have turned left, but you turned right, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, how it works out? Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously you've put the hard yards in, right, to get to where, you, where you've got to, um, and it is intense. Do you want to just summarise the from starting out at uni in Southampton to then how what's involved in essentially operating for that first time, fully qualified as a full orthopaedic surgeon? How long does that take and what's involved? So the quickest you can do it is probably 13, 14 years. Wow. It's, it's slightly different now to when I did it, which makes me sound really old, um, which I've got to get used to now, I suppose, because <laughs> I am becoming old, but that's, that's, that's part of life. Um, so as it was, age 18, go to university, do five years studying medicine. You would then do a year afterwards as a qualified doctor but what's termed pre-registration, so you weren't allowed to practice independently. You always had to be supervised, I guess. Yep. Now, that being said, back then you weren't necessarily massively supervised. You were kind of left to your own devices quite a lot and just, you know, told to feel free to cope, if you like. <laughs> feel free to cope. And, uh, and I, I was that. very lucky. I did six months in, in the Isle of Wight. Oh, nice. Which was quite traditional in its ways, but it meant you got a vast experience. And then I did six months in Winchester again. I got to work for some great people in Winchester, Christian Wakefield, Paul Gartell, uh, and most of all, a guy called Nigel Trimmins, who was, you know, really, again, inspirational and looked after me very well for such a, a junior guy. You would then apply to do surgery, medicine, or general practice. And so for me, it was surgery. So you had to get a, a basic surgical training scheme where it would last anywhere between two and three years and you'd rotate through different specialties, whether it be general surgery, so bowels and, and um, the abdomen, uh, breast surgery, spinal surgery, neurosurgery, so the brain, plastic surgery, so wounds and, uh, and things of that nature, trauma and orthopaedic surgery, which is bones and joints, uh, vascular surgery, which is um, the blood vessels of the body. So all these different ones, you'd have a, a grounding in all of them then you had to pass your, your base exam to become a member of the Royal College of Surgeons. And once you'd completed your basic surgical training, once you'd become a member of the Royal College of Surgeons, you could then advance to higher surgical training. So that's usually four years after graduating from medical school. And in that higher surgical training, you, you pick whichever one of those disciplines you want to get in more detail. And so for me, it was orthopaedic surgery. And then you enter a, a six-year period where you um, start doing, again, placements to learn as a registrar this time, or a higher surgical trainee. So you might do six months looking or working in a shoulder, six months knee, six months hips, mm. six months hand, six months foot, six months spine again, six months paediatrics. And through that six years, you're expected to pass your higher surgical examination, where you then become a fellow 
of the Royal College of Surgeons, of whichever college you are a specialist. So for myself, the Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Trauma and Orthopaedic Surgery. Mm. And then at the culmination of that, you'd then go and do a, a post-training um, fellowship, which is the icing on your cake, so to speak, where you really uh, focus on the super specialty that you want to do. So in, in my practice, that was to go to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver in Canada uh, and do some of the cutting edge top techniques there. But yeah, so that's, that's kind of the pathway. And then you can say, right, qualified, I'll return to the UK as it was in my, in my uh, career, find a consultant job, and then you just turn up your first day as a consultant, off you go. Wow. God, it's so involved. I mean, you kind of know this stuff as a layman, that, but that not to the extent that you've just described there. So you feel very, very safe in very good hands well, through all of that, right? Well, you know, what people often say to us, God, it takes a long time, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's quite, quite long, that, isn't it? And the quick response is, well, you don't want someone operating who <laughs> doesn't, doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> no, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So... Can you remember the first time you picked up the scalpel <laughs> and you actually, you know, oh, yeah. operated yeah, on yeah, someone? Yeah. What was that like? What's going? <laughs> can you remember what's going through your head? What the so emotions I, I, are? I, I remember it clear as day. That would be freaking me out big time. <laughs> That's why I'm not a, not a surgeon. I, I don't know if you'll ever get to hear this, but if if there's a surgeon called Bipin Theruville that listens to this, he's in India now. He was a registrar in Winchester when I was working for Mr. Trimmings in Winchester and we were on call together and a young man had, had shot himself in the wrist with a pellet gun because he was having a, a crisis with his girlfriend at the time right. and, and he'd missed everything but the pellet was stuck under his skin and I remember thinking alright that looks pretty easy to get out you know so I spoke to, to Bipin as the registrar I said look we've got this this chap it's not going to be able to be removed in A&E you know, he'll need to go to theatre. He said, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll take him to theatre tonight. So he has his anaesthetic, he's laying there, and uh, I said, can I, can I help out? Because, you know, I was keen as a bean, always looking to assist and, and help and stuff. And, uh, and Bipin says, yeah, 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 you, get you, you can do it, you get started, and I'll just scrub up and join you. So, oh, great. So I started scrubbing up, and, and look, the skills needed to do this are minimal. It's right. literally... <laughs> Make a cut, take a pair of tweezers, pick the thing out and put a stitch in it. And, and it's so basic, it's unreal. And my heart is pounding. I'm thinking, this is great. Yeah, brilliant. Scrubbing up, got my lather everywhere as I'm washing my hands. Put my gown on, put my gloves on. Walk to the table, I've prepped the arm, I'm waiting for Bipping. I can't find him. And the anaesthetist says to me, he said, come on, boy, get on with it. Okay. <laughs> and literally, take the knife. Oh, my God. I'm about to do this. Boom. Tweezers. And I'm almost under my mask. You know, yeah. control yourself. You've got this. You've got this. Put a stitch in. And Bippin's watching through the window of the theatre the whole time behind me, you know, knowing knowing what, what's going on. So, yeah, it was... I remember it clearly, distinctively. <laughs> you know, you've done other things. You'd have I've scrubbed up by then, so I knew it wasn't my first thing. And he, he obviously knew I was capable of doing it. Yeah. But it's just the... The first time, isn't it? You always remember the first time for a lot of things, and so that was uh, that was yeah that that was funny because you think of how panicked I was then, and compared with some of the stuff I do now. Oh my it's, god! It's, um, 
Yeah. It is funny looking back, but I guess that's 20 years of evolution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Gosh, no, that's, that's a brilliant story. I love that bipping. And Mr. What's it? Trimming? Trimmings. Trimmings. You couldn't write it, could you? He was either going to be a hairdresser or a, or a surgeon. <laughs> absolutely. But he's, a, he's a great guy. I'll tell you, this is another side note, side story. So he used to take us out for, he used to take his team out for dinner and, and a curry and a couple of pints every every time he had a team. And so I was, I was with him for six months. Well, I was with him for three months, but in the hospital for six months. And in retrospect, I'm, think, I'm thinking this is because he must have liked hanging out with me a little bit. So we went out three times for a curry and, and a couple of pints while we were there. And I'd always said to myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repay you for this one day. So fast forward um, maybe 15, 16 years, we were at the British Orthopaedic Association meeting in, in, in Belfast, it was, or Dublin. Um, I think it was in Dublin actually and um, I remember saying um, yeah you know I bumped into him he'd retired I said oh great to see you though he says oh it's great to see you've done so well you're a consultant and everything and um, I said look what, what are your plans tonight have you got a, got any plans for dinner and he says uh, no 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 plans um, brilliant um, do you want to go for a curry he says yeah it's, it's on me I said no don't be silly anyway so check comes at the end and they were fighting and we're arguing who pays it and and the waiter comes over he says oh don't worry um it's been taken care of i said to him have you paid for this he says no no have you paid for it? i said no so who paid for it he said oh the the group on the table over there said they would cover your bill I was like really and i'd looked and i knew who was on there and it was one of the one of the drug companies or equipment companies whose stuff i use who'd invited me for dinner that night <laughs> and I'd said to them, no, I can't, because I'm taking my old boss out for dinner and uh, and I can't make it. Anyway, he says, to, he says to me at the end of it, he says, maybe you've done a bit better than I thought. I said, oh, you, you can get me dinner any time. <laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant story. I love that. So you must have met some incredible characters. I mean, you talked a little bit about role models and how important role models have been in your life. And I think regardless of what profession, whether you're, you know, whether you run a business, whether you're in, you know, run a charity or you're in, in the healthcare profession, those those role models, I think, are, are pivotal, aren't they? Because it, it it shows a path that could be for you as well. So so you've mentioned a couple, but how, in reality, how important have role models been for you then, Neil, would you say, through your life? Yeah, massive. No doubt. I think there's a lot of it made recently about equality and diversity and that mindset. You know, if you don't see it, you don't dream about being it. Mm. So once you see it, you think, well, I can be that. And, and I can relate to that massively. You know, I think we all have so, in somewhere within us this degree of insecurity and this inferiority complex that, you know, imposter syndrome, do we really belong? Yeah. And I always remember as a, a student looking at the surgical registrar or the orthopaedic registrar thinking, God, they must know so much. They must know so much. I'll never know all of that. Wow. You know, I'll never pass my surgical exams, the amount of stuff you have to know for it. And then you do and you think, oh, maybe I do belong, you know. Mm. And then other people say to you, God, you're really confident about this, that and the other. You really know your stuff. And you think, oh, maybe I'm not doing so bad after all, you know. But yeah. you, you, you don't kind of have that, that validation going along. So you're always, I guess, comparing yourself to other people. Mm. And part of that is having role models. So when you see somebody like, you know, I used to work in Lancaster and there's a, there's a, a in your training, there's a, surgeon there called Dave Knowles. Not many people know about him, doesn't really go on social media, doesn't promote himself. 
for he is technically an outstanding surgeon, just a normal bloke. Mm. And, you know, he, he kind of used to say stuff to me about that, you know, like, just the way he broke it down, just do it, do it simply, do it properly. And you just thought, yeah, okay, you get it. And I like that. I get that about you. And then I've also, at the other end of the spectrum, been really lucky to work for Professor Phil Turner, who's the former president of the BOA. And so he taught me loads of stuff. You know, he was a real mentor for me. Um, really supportive about my time in Canada when lots of people weren't so keen on, on me leaving the country to, to do that. Um, massively facilitated that and, and showed me how to, how to be in, in my profession, I suppose, that way. And I could I could name loads of people to be yeah, honest, that, you yeah. know, but each each of them have have a little thing. But one of the things that Dave said to me, which really resonates, is as a trainee, you ultimately need to be better than your trainer, because you're learning all these things from your different trainers, and you should as the trainee pick the best things from each of them, mm. and that makes you better. And it's no different in terms of the characteristics, the the role model bits, as you mentioned. I like the bits from that trainer. I like the bits from that trainer. And that should make me a better role model for other people, I suppose. Mm, mm. And it's that concept of standing on the shoulders of giants in some ways. Mm. You know, you you learn, you take it forward, but then also you've got to pay it back for the next generation. Yeah, too. absolutely. So when you, so your mum and dad then, um, what, 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 they must be incredibly proud of you. What, what was their response when, you know, you kind of, you rock up back in Barrow, the big surgeon, oh yeah, I've made it. How is it? How is it at home? Are your mum and dad just super proud of you? And, but you're probably not arrogant like that. You're probably very humble when you go back home, right? It's funny, you know, because we, we just this weekend, my mum turned 80 this year and um, she she had a lot of her formative years were in Cork in Ireland. Mm. So we took her over for the weekend and, and had a lovely weekend there just to reminisce. Um, so, that, you know, that, that's really nice that I can give them... Yeah. That experience now. Yeah. But yeah, you, you, it's, I'm laughing to myself because I know exactly what happens every time I go home. I'll knock on the, I'll pull up, park my car, I'll knock on the door, mum or dad will come to the door, I'll come in, I'll get a big hug. How are you? I'm all right. Would you like something to drink? Would you like something to eat? You know, and that's, that's basically it. And then before you know it, you're sitting down in the kitchen, um, having a, a kind of, Diet Coke or Pepsi or something like that, and just chatting away like like you've never left. Yeah, you know, and it, it, it's it's me me parents, it's me friends, you know, me mates that I grew up with in Barry. You know, they, I don't think any of them view me as a successful surgeon or anything. They just view me as Jenny, you know, yeah. and that's yeah. That's, it's nice, you know, it's how it, how it is. Well, it certainly brings you back down to earth, doesn't it? Because if you get <laughs> ideas above your station too much, you know, people used to say to me, oh, look at you, you're all posh living down in fancy London, you know, yeah. who do you think you are? Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you know, you're back home and it's like, right, get around in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or whatever. But it's, it, it's good because it, it keeps you humble, right? Because, you know, I'd imagine in your field as well, you know, there is a lot of adoration. You are, you hold a lot of power, right, with the roles that you do. Um, in a good way but there must be some of the well maybe I'm making the wrong assumption is there stardom around the field of top surgeons especially with the clients that you deal with 
It's a great question. I don't think there's stardom in terms of the the generality or the general understanding of what stardom would be. Mm. You know, you don't, unless you're a TV GP who's giving advice on TV on this morning regularly, you probably wouldn't know many doctors in the country if I asked you to name 10 doctors. Within what we do, yeah, we operate on some very high-profile people. But I can guarantee nobody listening to this would, would know me from who I've operated on. Mm. Because no one says it. No, because confidentiality, yeah. obviously. So, yeah. And I, I, I don't say it. No. I don't, I don't publish it anywhere or, or um, highlight it anywhere. Um, so it's hard to know if the stardom are not outside of our bubble. Mm. Now, in terms of what we do, if we go to a conference, for instance, you know there are some people at that conference who are regarded as the, the best in the country for what they do. Mm. So there may be some degree of stardom there. But then even within that, because we go to those meetings and we all know each other anyway, it's not so much. So, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. It's I'd never view myself as being a, a star or celebrity or anything like that. That's not not really me and not really why I do want to do. No. Um, and I quite like it that way as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're a humble guy, right? You're very kind of, you know, you're down play... You know, you're not sort of the big I am. Um, and I think that's probably why you're incredibly successful and why people, people, you know, gravitate towards you when they need help, right? Maybe. I think so. <laughs> I think so. That's my opinion. So so there was an interesting story you were telling me. I know you, I was listening to you on another podcast around why surgeons in the yeah. UK are called Mr. and not Dr. So... Do you want to just talk us through it? Because I was fascinated. I was like, oh my God, I never knew that. So, tell, tell, how, where did surgeons start back so in the surgeons day? Surgeons have been going for hundreds of years. You know, if you needed an operation, you'd have an operation, you would go to the theatre to have surgery. Not the operating theatre, the theatre. <laughs> because people would sell tickets so you could watch it. It was, it was an entertainment back hundreds of years ago. Wow. And I always remember, there's, a, there's quite a famous story, it's in... Um, I think it's in the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh Museum is where I saw it. And it's the only recorded operation that had a 300% mortality. So the surgeon was operating mm. on somebody. He was amputating the patient's leg because they had gangrene and sepsis. Mm. Unfortunately, not enough that the patient eventually died. But because it was done in the theatre... There was a, a bravado about trying to get it done as quick as possible. And so in his haste, the surgeon who was operating managed to cut off the fingers of his assistant. <laughs> because what? of the local infection, the infection got into his assistant. His assistant died at the same time. So that's 200% mortality. And then the third death was a member of the viewing public who collapsed and hit their head and had a bleed in the brain. And unfortunately, they died as well. And so I think based on circumstances like that, it was then decided not to operate in the theatre. So um, because surgery had gone on for many, many years, there was an idea to try and localise it. And why not? We've already talked about Mr Trimmings, the hairdresser mm. slash surgeon. Great, great skill set, right? So why wouldn't you go to your hairdresser to have surgery? So that's where the mister comes from. Back in the day... Hundreds of years ago, if you needed surgery, you would go and see your barber. 
to have surgery. The barber surgeons, as they were called. And it's why outside a barber, the red and the white thing spins round. The red is for blood and the white is for bandages. So if you saw a barber or a hairdresser who could do surgery, they would, have to dis they would display that outside their, their barber shop. And then it was decided, um, actually, it might be a better idea if, if, if the barbers were actually doctors doing surgery instead, if they had a better understanding of the human body, other parts of the anatomy, the physiology, the healing and, and things the doctors would know. So it's decided that surgeons had to first become doctors. Again, this is a couple of hundred years ago or whatever. So it was. So you became a doctor and then you became a surgeon. But in a, a tip to the hat to the traditions of it, once you became a doctor, you were called doctor. But if you were then to become a surgeon, once you were acknowledged as a fellow or a member of the Royal College of Surgeons, you were allowed to drop the name doctor and become Mr. So as an identifier that you're a surgeon rather than a doctor, but also as a, a tip of the cap to the barber surgeons of before. And so now we still carry on that tradition a couple of hundred, 300 maybe years later. The only problem comes when you go to a different country and they, they don't think you're a doctor now. Wow. Yeah, it's such a fascinating story. I love that because, you know, the history, I had no idea when I, when I first heard that I was listening to the other podcasts that you did. I thought, wow, I've got to get Neil to talk about this <laughs> online because it is fascinating. And, and you experienced that sort of confusion, shall we oh. say, when you were in Canada, right? When, on yeah, a, over absolutely. There. So in Canada, if you're a surgeon, you're called doctor. So I turn up, bold as brass, wearing my nice shiny suit, tie, polished shirt, everything ironed. And I turn up and I'm thinking, right, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, I'm going to make a good first impression. First patient comes through the door. Hello, sir, I'm, I'm Mr. Jane, Neil Jane. I'm a, I'm a surgeon from the United Kingdom visiting uh, the department now. Mr. Jane, you say? Yeah, yeah. Are you a doctor? <laughs> so, yeah, 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 I'm, it's just... Uh, how we call it in, in the UK, and literally everybody was like that. Oh. And so by the second day, I'm thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this. I'm just going to call myself Dr. Jane instead. It'll be fine. First patient through the door. Hi, I'm, I'm Neil Jane, Dr. Jane. I'm, uh, I'm from the United Kingdom. I'm, I'm visiting. And, and the patient said, oh, oh, are you, are you really a surgeon? Yeah, why? So I thought in England you called yourself Mr. if you were a surgeon. <laughs> and my exasperate answer, oh, my days. How, what, what? how do you know? And she says to me, oh, if you go to the Royal College of Surgeons of London, as you enter, there's a big staircase um, and there's two busts on the end of the staircase. And she said, um, I think her great-grandfather was one of those busts. So it, her family knew all about it because uh, they were heavily involved in the Royal College. So at that point, I just thought, I can't win either way. I'll just I'll just pick and choose. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. So it's a UK thing. So I, I didn't even know that. And I, I obviously I knew I didn't know the reason why it was Mr. and not Doctor, but I assumed that was global. I didn't even realise that was a UK thing. So yeah, uh, interesting. There's probably other countries that pick yeah, up on the back okay. of it. Probably some more of the old uh, British colony yeah. type countries. I don't know, but um, certainly in North America, it's it's doctor is doctor. Mm, fantastic. And so let's talk a little bit around um, sport. Mm -hmm. because it's a big passion of yours. You started off like being really keen sportsman yourself and, and thinking that was going to be the, the direction. Then the commentary um, option that you decided not to do. But you've essentially now managed to, I suppose, merge your passion with your profession in a way, really, with, with what you do with elite, elite athletes, elite sports people. How different is that for you versus 
the other work you do, which is, you know, with, your, with your, any other average client, is it a lot more intense, the scrutiny, if you're operating on a premiership footballer that's worth X millions, you know, does that change the dynamics or is it pretty broadly the same? You know, it's going to sound really boring for that question, but it's <laughs> exactly the same. Exactly the same. Your, your core principles are the same. Yeah. You came to see me. Yeah. You termed yourself Joe Average before. You're not. You're a, you're a person. You, you, you want to get an improvement from the situation you're in. And I'm blessed and, and lucky that I've been trained in a way to provide you with the service mm. that can do that. And it's no different for you than a, a footballer, an Olympic athlete, a championship boxer, they're all in a position where they come to see me where they're not doing so well with something and there's something I can do that, you know, most of the time gets them better and able to redo what they want to do in their quality of life. And so that's the core principle. So in that way, it's no real different. And people have asked me that question before and I'll always remember that there was, equating it to surgery, there's only been one time in an operation that I've ever been like, oh God. This, I'm, I'm nervous about this. Mm. In a way that was like, oh, this is unusual, this is different. And it was a lady who was in her early 70s who'd torn a, a rotator cuff tendon in her shoulder. She came to see me and she said, all I want to do is be able to lift my grandchild. Mm. And I don't know what it was about who, whoever I've operated on, whoever they are and what they've achieved in sport or non-sport, it was just something that really hit home with me about this lady and how it was a really bad tear. And at one point I thought, oh, crumbs, are we going to be able to, to repair it? And ultimately did. She rehabbed afterwards really well. Um, and I always remember she said to me when I discharged her, she said, I said, how is it? She said, it's a lot better. It's not perfect, but I can lift my grandchildren up and, and that's what I wanted. So thank you. And I was just like, God. I got emotional and I was like all, yeah. all over the place but it was um, yeah that was the only time and that completely not related to sport and it's so as, as I say the core principles the same but the actual processes they're very different mm. you know the demands of, of sport are completely different but it, it again lends itself to that multiple people in a year one person what they want from their doctor it's completely different to what somebody else want, might want from the doctor. Mm. So you've also, as a, as a person, as a, as a practitioner, a consultant, because you're trying to get that information from your patient, sometimes you might have to adapt how you are naturally to what that person wants. Mm. And so there's a bit of that as well. And so within professional sport, one of the things is you are not the most important person in that room. And in fact, you're a very, very small piece of the puzzle for them. Mm. So, you know, you talk about humility and things like that. Um, you have to be that way if you're working in top-level sport, I think, because you're not that important. And that's the bottom line. Well, you're not, but you are. <laughs> yeah, but you, but, yeah. yeah. Well, you are, but, you, you, you know... You, you're not the only thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and plus, you know, uh, one of my favourite sayings is good surgery is worthless without good rehab. So, you know, actually, take an ACL injury... If it's a year, my bit takes two hours. Patient's bit takes 365 days. So, mm. you know, actually relatively, I'm not that important, I suppose, in that way. Mm. You know, what you do, you do it to the best of your ability and you give them a good result. But I could tell you of a number of patients who I've operated on, 
the operation, I pat myself on the back, I think that could not go any better. And they haven't done well because of um, the rehab. They just haven't engaged in it. Now, you don't get that in elite sport because yeah, the, the incentives are there. So ultimately, it's, it's a massive privilege to work in elite sport. It's a massive privilege to meet a lot of people who, who play sport and, and through it, you know, I've been able to meet a couple of my heroes as well, which is just, it blows my mind really to think that they then are coming to see me for for me to help them. But um, but yeah, the actual principles of it are pretty, pretty similar. Mm, yeah, no, it's fascinating. And, and you know, with, with I think we can learn a lot from sports, you know, in, in and applying the discipline, the mindset, you know, into whether it's business or life or just general kind of, you know, approach to, to success really and winning and how do you overcome failure and all of that kind of good yeah. stuff. So you're surrounded by people that are competing at the ultimate level, arguably, right? And how important is the mindset and the approach to, if someone's got a, an injury that potentially could be career ending for, for some people as well, how important in the process is their mindset and, and kind of not getting in a very dark place about it as part of the process of kind of coming through the other side of an injury? Oh, massive, massive. I mean, that's, that's it. it's just as important. Mm. But again, what you, you tend to find most of the time in elite sport is it's like, right, had the injury, 24-hour rule, I'm going to be disappointed for 24 hours. Next day, right, how do we get better? Mm. And, and that seems to be a, a difference, if you like, between that and a, a, a non-elite sport population where there's a bit more dwelling on the negativity side of it. Mm. But I don't know if it's the professionalism of it or, or not. You know, I, you mentioned the equi- equivalence of sport to lots of other careers. I couldn't agree more. You know, the, my roles in sport as a, as a competitor in my youth massively have given me life skills to take forward into what I do now and even even now you're never stopping learning you know you asked me earlier about what makes a great surgeon well there's a lot of things that would equate to what makes a great footballer Mm. you know you hear about people like Messi Ronaldo the best at their game you hear that they're super talented and then eventually you hear that they worked so hard and actually it's the same you can be super talented at surgery, but unless you put in the yards, unless you put in the effort, unless you prepare for every operation, if you review the notes, look at the x-rays, look at the scans, think through in your mind the process of each operation. Mm. And it might only take two minutes now because you've done that operation thousands of times. But I still do it. And I think most people would because you still want to get the best for that patient mm. in terms of the operation. So there's loads of similarities there too. Um, and so that I try and take into my practice for sure. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. And when you look back, what, what are you most proud of, would you say, for your career? I mean, obviously you've still got a, like, a big long road well, ahead yeah. in terms of what's next, but what, what, <laughs> what stands out as being the proudest moment? Yeah, this probably isn't one of them, I suppose. I mean, so, some things, just, just to go back to the previous um, comment as well, I kind of went off one and then forgot what I was talking about. The, the comparison, I'd say, about sport having a, an injury is a lot like my career and you apply for a role or a job, you get rejected, 
you don't get that role, you don't get that job. Yeah, you're gutted. Mm. You're gutted, but you've still got to get up the next day. You've still got to go and help lots of patients and, and do your best for them, much like we talked about Sam Warburton. Mm. So you, your life skills that way are to kind of compartmentalise it professionally. Now, when you go home in the evening, you might be really grumpy and upset again, but actually you've just got to switch out of it. And so the mindset of that in sport is huge. And, and what you generally find is that sports people are good at that and then they'll recover better. Um, plus, for those who don't, there's a huge um, improvement, I suppose, over the last 20 years of supplementing that side of things, the mental health of sport, mm. the psychology of sport, and even something as simple as tearing your ACL, returning to play, the fear of it happening again because you've invested a year into recovering. Um, we now know about kinesiophobia and some psychological techniques to, to treat that as well. So, you know, it's definitely there. So that, that's a similarity there. Hopefully that's given me enough time to pause and in the back of my head try and think of some, <laughs> some proud moments. Um, it's funny, you know, because you, you don't generally look back on what you're doing. I, mm. I know in my mindset there's three particular things I want to do in my career that I'll then be able to say... Yeah, I'm happy with that. Um, so they're, they're still to come, but no one knows about them, so you're not going to get that as a scoop oh, out of me. Oh, cool, blimey. Um, <laughs> you tease. We'll have to have you on next time. Well, come, come back in, in 15 <laughs> years, and if I've done them all, I'll, I'll, I'll confide in you. Later. Excellent. But it's, um, I've been really lucky, really lucky. And, and what I'm proud of day to day is people just saying thank you. That's probably the biggest thing. You know, if you've, mm. the, the power of being able to help people is just massive, and that's why we, we all do what, what we do this way you know I've had other things which I've just thought crumbs I never thought I'd be doing that you know I've worked with the England national football team I've worked with world championship boxers I've worked with the Commonwealth Games when they were in Birmingham um, recently and and you're just thinking am I really doing this you know um, so they're immensely proud moments I think another one was you know, I gave a talk for, for a, a conference on um, climate change within sport affiliated to UNICEF. Mm. UNICEF, what, what are they asking me for, you know? So there's there's all these, um, these bits to it that you just think immensely proud bits when you look back and reflect, but because you don't really do it very much, you, you kind of just live in the moment. So, yeah, there's loads of them really, um, but you keep aiming for, for, for up. And that's why in my mind, I've got these things, these goals that I, I have almost a bit like to control my own mental health, really. So you kind of know, right, if I can achieve them, mm. I'll be happy. That's, that's my contentment with my career. Career goals achieved, done. And, and if I'm honest with you, I never thought I'd be as close as I am to them. Mm. Um, so that makes it a bit exciting, but also a little bit worrying now. If I don't do them, that that um, that yeah, that'd be that'd be difficult. But you know, proud of when I graduated from university, proud of graduating from fellowship in Canada, and proud proud to get your consultant post. But yeah, just proud to help people most days of my life, which is I think doing something pretty useful. Yeah, that's amazing. So you just got to replace if with when. 
mm-hmm. when when those three um, big things happen, and uh, okay. and it's all be good. See all mindset. Good. Yeah, when yeah, it's, yeah, it's well, already done. It's already done. I can't wait to find uh, out, and then we'll have you back on the podcast. You see, and it probably won't be fifteen years. I have a feeling it might be sooner than that. You never know. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you know. <laughs> Keep if, us posted. If and such a tease. Such a tease. Um, no, it's fantastic. And you know, just just one before I, I get into the kind of last few questions when you're going into surgery is there a routine that you have almost like a getting in state process that sort of you know gets you really focused etc because you know whether someone is public speaking going in to do I don't know a big meeting or something I think there's a big piece around that getting in state moment Um, so do you have a particular routine or some tips that kind of help you and might help other people when they're nervous about you probably you're not nervous you're going in but you know what you're doing but that's still that moment of right okay yeah Go, go on, do your thing now. Yeah, absolutely. I call it a trigger. Okay. A trigger moment. Talk so, us through that. Um, it's something I picked up again from sport. So you hear in, in, in something like tennis, there's a, there's a player who will look at a certain point in the court, right, that's my trigger. I mean, or they'll shout at someone in the, in the audience or pick someone in the audience who their target, it's, it's not a personal thing for that mm. person in the audience. It's just their trigger to help them focus. And... And I learned about this a few years ago, again, in the sports psychology thing. I thought, I wonder if that, that can work. And so I'm going to let the biggest secret out now. So I do a lot of speaking at conferences and, and a lot of teaching at courses and stuff. And I'll always start with, thank you, Mr. Chairman, or Madam Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, my name's Neil Jane. And that's my trigger for that. And as mm. soon as I've said that, I'm in. Mm. And so that's my start for whatever I'm speaking. I'll have prepared it, I'll have done everything I can do. A few moments before I stand up at the, the microphone, my heart's going again and, and you get nervous. And the other thing I've learned to do is to embrace nerves a little bit because it means you care. Mm-hmm. And so you do it, but as soon as the trigger goes, I'm in and I start. Now I'm lucky in surgery because every operation you do, there's a process before you start. You have to um, go through the we've got this thing called the World Health Organization checklist so there's a lot of things we've borrowed in surgery or copied really from aviation as checklists okay. to make sure that events don't go wrong basically so you don't do the wrong operation on the wrong patient or the wrong leg or whatever sure. and so you start you go through that and as soon as that's done I go and I wash my hands and I put a gown on put gloves on so it's almost like a built-in mm, mm. thing that the routine starts. Mm. Now you're ready. Mm. And so, yeah, definitely there are those things. One of them more conscious than the other. Um, but it's definitely there. Like if you'd ask, ask us to do an operation, not that you would because of infection, <laughs> but if you just asked us to do the operation without scrubbing and gowning, yeah, you wouldn't, you'd, uh, I'd be thrown, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's good. It's, that's really good advice, actually. So whatever, whatever anyone's doing, one, nerves nerves are good because it means you care, yeah. but harness them so that you can actually, yeah. the adrenaline, right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but then have that little routine that just kind of calms you, gets you sorted. And then, and it's amazing how you then almost, I suppose, autopilot partly kicks in, doesn't it? Because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. How do you become a master at something? By repetition, repetition, isn't it? You know, and that's what leads to mastery, which is clearly what you are. It's it's 10,000 hours, isn't it? It's the Gladwell principle, which I guess puts some some structure to it and some guidance to how long it might take. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's, you do it. And then say, for example, the teaching thing, I can teach the same talk 
to 20 different groups and if you can be a bit flexible with it and a bit more versatile with your teaching style mm. you know some groups would want more interactive stuff you know some groups would want more didactic stuff if you can be a bit versatile that takes you to that next level yeah it's just before that if you can get the kind of baseline or the foundation that's when you can play with it a little mm. bit to make it more bespoke yeah and i think that's quite useful with surgery as well there's an operation you can do can i do the operation i can do it i can do it competently and we're fine and then what you're trying to do is right the bespokeness for the individual mm. how can we get those marginal gains those yeah. subtle differences to, to make it absolutely as good as we can for that person well it links back to your david brailsford example doesn't it of incremental gains in what he did with british cycling right yeah. um so yeah just those tiny little tweaks are just the what really is where you get the absolute well does perfection exist but this way you're going to make you know that sort of fine tuning isn't it so yeah, yeah. so perfection so is it is a top tip and I, uh, I said this to one of my patients after after i was operated on him he, he was very kind he took me out for, um, for a, a pint of Budweiser because that was his drink and, and I can't mention who he is but he was one of my heroes growing up Right. and um, so when he came in the room I had to get it out of the way I was like lovely to meet you before we go any further you're a massive hero of mine I can't believe you're coming here it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and he was he was like oh, oh that's that's amazing I said now I've got that out of the way <laughs> I'm going to be calm I'm going to be relaxed I'm going to be professional so I'm afraid you won't get any more out of me for a bit yeah um, and then we were joking about uh, he said oh I'd, I'd love to take you for a pint and I said all right well what do you drink he said Budweiser but you won't have that and I said well, actually I quite like it you know it's a light beer but I, I like it so we went and had one and we were, we were talking about this and we were talking about the equivalences with him because he played sports at a very high level mm. very high level and and some of the things he did before playing and he was asking me similar questions is there anything you do and stuff mm. and and what do you do afterwards and because i'm a bit of a perfectionist that way i always give myself a mark out of 10 for the technicality of how i've done in that operation mm. and so he says to me i hope you gave yourself 10 for me <laughs> <laughs> i said i didn't actually because i never do because there's always something now, it won't make a difference to the outcome, but it's just the technicalities of maybe what you're doing that you think, mm, could I have done that a bit more efficiently and, I don't know, say 20 seconds or whatever in terms of mm. the, the handover between a, an instrument and another instrument or something like that. And so I'm forever thinking about these little things in a way to try and make it better overall. So, so yeah, the perfectionist aspect comes, but that also has to be balanced with the actually that's okay mm. that's going to achieve the goal so someone once equated it for me it's like taking a flight from london to la as long as you land it doesn't matter how much turbulence you've had <laughs> just make sure the end result's good yeah yeah and, uh, and yeah so that's that's that so great piece of advice that actually you know just just really check in with yourself and say you know have I given my all today have I been the best version of me today whatever it is and that's quite a good way isn't it to just sort of not beat yourself up but just to sort of go okay well actually next time maybe I'll do that slightly differently so yeah it's a good good way to to kind of keep on track because progress right I think as human beings we're at our happiest and our most fulfilled when we're progressing in something, whatever it is, whether it's fitness, whether it's business, whether it's education, whatever. I think if we always feel like we're going forward, that's when 
we feel, we feel at our best certainly I know I know for me um where where you feel like you're stuck or you're stagnating or you're going backwards and your world's getting smaller that's where I think mental health stuff starts coming in but I think progress even if it's only tiny tiny baby steps is what it's all about always want us to be a little bit better a little bit better and that's where greatness comes well yeah I mean I couldn't agree more I think it's it's that self-fulfillment isn't it that mm. you're feeling yeah I've achieved something yeah. when you achieve something you feel better and it's yeah. perpetual then because you want to achieve more. The Senna used to say, didn't he, Win winning's like a drug. And so if you can do something in a day that makes you feel like you've won, that gives you that self-worth, then you just want more of it. Mm, mm. And I'm very lucky in that my job, my career, what I do for a living gives me immense self-worth. It makes me very happy. And, um, you know, they say, don't don't they? The, the lucky people are the ones who feel like they don't have to work a day in their life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, no, you're clearly doing what you what you love. And over the years, you'll have had bags of advice, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Any standout pieces of advice? More the stuff that more the more the stuff I've ignored. Or or, or bad advice that you that didn't take yeah. actually, yeah, because that's equally important. I, I I remember when I went to Canada, I didn't know anybody, didn't know a single person, and. I was in my early 30s and I thought, you know, you've, you've gone through medical training, you've gone through postgraduate training, you're trying to be something that's expected of you. And the same in terms of society. And I wondered to myself, and I remember sitting at the airport before I came on the plane thinking this, can I exist as me? Just being the person I want to be in a society who nobody knows me. It's like a, almost like a fresh start, but also like a bit of a, a sociological test. Mm. And so I went there and I was myself, completely myself, um, and I was welcomed. And I've got some friends from that, that time that will be with me forever. And I'm so grateful for my time there. And so I came back to the UK, still with that ethos. I'm going to be like this, I'm going to be like that. So for instance, you be my patient, you can call me Neil. You don't have to call me Mr. Jane. And I always remember sitting in the coffee room in this, in this hospital a week or two after starting and one of the other orthopaedic surgeons saying to me, now I know you're friendly, I know you've, you've got a reputation being friendly. The staff, when it comes to the staff, you are Mr. Jane, you are not Neil. And certainly when it comes to your patients, you will be Mr. Jane. I was like, yeah, all right, okay, yeah in one ear out the other because because yeah. things it was it was the difference was so stark that you think i get why you're saying it but actually putting up barriers again it doesn't work for me because mm. i like that openness i like the openness to someone to say actually i i feel comfortable saying this to you yeah because if it's a patient you're getting more information out of them to help them again mm. if it's a member of staff who potentially sees there's a piece of kit missing or something's become unsterile and they're worried about saying it to you in case they're just mm. worried how you'll react. Well, actually, this patient is going to be a detriment in the end, so just, just say it, you know. Mm. And, and, yeah, so those bits of advice uh, I've kind of discarded. Good bits of advice, again, there's too many to mention. You know, I've been very lucky to work for loads of people along my career. I've, I've spoken to loads of people even after being a consultant who've given me advice at various points and 
and you just try and take on board as much as you can not just from medicine either you know from from all bits of, yeah. of life and 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 then other advice that isn't direct to you but you pick up like the the story of uh, signing autographs you, mm. you kind of think actually I can adapt that to what to what I do so so yeah it's probably Again, I'm, I'm not doing well, am I? There wasn't one moment that I'm most proud no, but it, of. There's but not it's, one bit of advice. No, but it? that's great, isn't it? Because, I mean, it shows you've had a rich and colourful kind of enjoyable journey where there isn't just one standout moment. There's lots of these, you know, kind of pivotal points. And, and it all adds up, doesn't it, to, to being who you are today, right? But I think you're, you know, coming back to the call me Neil point, that's obviously very linked to family background, values, probably where, how you were brought up as a, you know, and, and that humble side of you and that friendly, you know, small community probably is, it informs that a little bit as well, maybe. I dare say it does. You know, I think if, yeah. if I'd have been a bit hoity-toity at my school, like it would have been kicked out of me pretty quickly. So, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think, um, I think, yeah, I think it's just a nice way to be, isn't it? Because we're all, we're all people, aren't we? At the end of the day, and it, and it doesn't matter if you're a multi-millionaire owner of a whatever company, you're an elite sport sports person, or you, I see I see someone in the NHS who just wants to lift a grandchild. Yeah, you're all people, yeah. and, and we all deserve to have the best that a doctor can give you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, what's next for you? I know you're not going to like reveal the big three. Um, <laughs> I'm going to for I'll be I'll be messaging you going. How are you getting on with your big three? Yeah. Um, but yeah, what what's what sort of what's on the on the radar for you over the next kind of couple of years? Yeah, so the the hope is just to progress further in in terms of sport, formalise some some more kind of regular arrangements I've got with different clubs or societies or associations um you know big one is next summer with 2024 is a massive summer of sport we've got the euro 24 so there may be some more work with england there hopefully mm. uh, hopefully not though actually in some ways because <laughs> you, you, you kind of hope the players won't get injured so you're not needed um there's the olympic games of course the paralympic games so a couple of big things there which um hopefully i'll be involved in in some capacity um, following on from what I've done in the Commonwealth Games, and um, and then beyond that, you know, I'm, I'm an active member of the British Orthopaedic Sports Trauma and Arthroscopy Association. So I'm the treasurer um, of that society, and we've got our, our national meeting, our national conference, um, in a couple of weeks' time down in London, and that's going to be at Lord's Cricket Ground. So if anyone wants to check it out, it's Boster. B-O-S-T-A-A dot um, And similarly, next year, I can't reveal yet where the conference is going to be, but it's at another iconic home of sport in the United Kingdom. So, you know, that's building as well. So these are the bits outside of the mm. day-to-day work, if you like. But, yeah, the day-to-day work is just keep, keep doing what I'm doing, keep progressing, keep trying to do my best for my patients, stay up to date with the new techniques. Uh, critically appraise the new techniques as well because mm. you, you obviously don't just want to start something new without knowing it works as well so there's all that but keep going with my teaching and um and maybe the research as well so there's there's loads of other things i do beyond the the kind of just day in day out of seeing patients which which keeps me active mm, fantastic and this podcast brave bold brilliant mm-hmm. what does that mean to you neil well i don't see myself as particularly brave i'm not that bold really because i'm a bit of a chicken and I'm certainly not brilliant. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I still don't know why you've asked me to do it, but <laughs> I, you're, you're, you're all of the above. So uh, it's just a privilege to have been asked to, to come on the, 
the podcast with you. So thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, I think you guys definitely are brave, bold and brilliant. And you're just far too humble um, for your own good. But that's what makes you absolutely special and a delight to spend time with, Neil. So thank you. Thank you. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review. Thank you.